This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I am Eric Balchunas. The author of a new book. Congratulations. Thank you, Joel. You were a big inspiration. And uh, honestly, if it wasn't for you, I don't think it'd be written. So uh, thank you very much. And But yeah, it well, feels good to get this puppy Maybe a little bit there. too much credit. Maybe a little bit too much credit. But it did start once upon a time. We got in a car and we went to Malvern, Pennsylvania. And we interviewed a legend... Jack Bogle for trillions. And what came out of that interview actually ended up inspiring you. What what was the the part that lit a light bulb for you to write the book? Uh I'd interviewed him two other times before that, but that particular interview, the what I walked away from was how prophetic he was. Remember, that's the interview where he said, and I had never heard him say this before, he was predicting that a lot of the large asset managers would mutualize. There would be a mass mutualization of the fund industry, which basically means they'd convert from, from, from being sort of for-profit to the Vanguard structure, which nobody has copied since. And we'd say, well, why would they do that? Well, they're going to get that desperate. Why? Well, because nobody's buying their stuff anymore. And he went, you know, he basically traced out what's going to happen 20, 30 years into the future. And while that wasn't the only thing that interests me, after he passed away, that stuck with me of as to like, Maybe someone should try to get some of this down on paper. Not just the stuff he predicted, but just how impactful. Because if some of the stuff he predicts comes true, I mean, he will have really like completely, like not only reformed the industry, but but ver- I wouldn't say destroyed is not the right word, but seriously uh, shrunk it, reformed it, um, just with just as with his his sheer will of personality and that vanguard structure. Um, and I thought this is. I mean, how could you not be fascinated by by this guy and this topic? So that's what that's what inspired me, and it was that an interview in particular. I, I will say I did find out later that he wrote a book called "Stay the Course," which was his last book, and in that book he also talks about the mass mutualization. So what we got in our interview, by the way, was a lot of the material from what he wrote in his last book, and so I was able to sort of like tie up a lot of after reading that book, our interview and that book to really nail down what he was trying to say. So the name of the book is The Bogle Effect. If you're hearing this, it is out now. 
I want you to pre-order as many copies as you want. We're going to get uh, Eric's sales numbers up on Amazon and turn them into a bestseller. And we're going to be joined today by Annie Massa, our colleague in Bloomberg News, who covers asset managers and ETFs, to talk some about your favorite insights about Jack Bogle, who passed away about a year after we had that interview with him on Trillions. This time on Trillions, the Bogle effect. Annie, welcome back to Trillions. Hi, thanks for having me. Are you going to have Eric autograph your copy at our book party on May 5th? What the heck? I already have the Bogle effect with me, but Eric, you didn't autograph it yet. I'm going to have to hunt you down in the office. Uh, happily. I, I didn't want to assume. I'm not Stephen King. Some people are like, why didn't you autograph my book? I'm like, well, I mean, because, you know, there's probably going to be somebody who's like, why did you autograph my book? You're not Stephen King. I don't want to presume it. So, but Annie, I'm happy to do it. I will stop by your I, desk. I want but the I autograph. You, totally. I, I specifically hunted you out for an advanced copy, though, and dropped it off at your desk. I had to ask people around, where does Annie sit? Actually, and I could tell you know, I was bugging them. <laughs> they were mid, like, writing. She used to sit a bunch of, uh, near a bunch of writers. They were like, over there. This anyway, so I found funny. the desk and I put it there. You, you put it there, and one day I was working from home, and someone actually wrote to me and was like, hey, uh, I saw you had the Bogle effect on your desk. Can I borrow it? And I was like, yeah, as long as you give it back to me. And I oh, the sen- it's, it's already working its way around That's the New right. York media it's, circles. Yep, I'm making the circuit. <laughs> All right, Eric, we're going to do viral. five... <laughs> we're, Eric, we're going to do five hot takes from the Bogle effect with you. And I'm going to start with number one, which was we excerpted this in the latest issue of Bloomberg Business Week, and I want you to talk about how Jack Bogle was actually a punk rocker. Yeah, this is a metaphor. Everybody knows I love music. I love my pop culture metaphors, and I I don't take this lightly, but Bogle, whenever I would hear him speak, I'd be like, man, he looks like a latter-day Henry Fonda or your grandfather, and he always had like a sweater vest. He just looked very approachable and folksy, but the words dropping out of his mouth were just completely different. Like he'd be on financial TV, basically saying like market timing is, is a, a exercise in futility. Why would you trade stocks? Yada, yada. And he would basically, you know, the whole, the whole network is designed to see how you can make money by trading stocks. I mean, that's just like, and so here comes this guy and he would do it at the ETF conference. He'd say, ETFs are awful and right to an ETF crowd. Then he'd go to Morningstar where there's a lot of active managers say active manager, you got to lower your fees. You guys are awful. And I found that to be kind of punkish. I mean, this is a guy basically, uh, you know, purposely sort of being contrarian in front of an audience. But then as I dug deeper, I thought the punk rock metaphor was actually even more apropos because I found this interview with uh, Johnny Ramone, who a lot of people think the Ramones started punk rock in 74. And if you listen to that first album, it's pretty much the basis of a lot of what came after, including grunge and alternative. But he said, all we did was take out the stuff from rock music that we didn't like. Blues influence, guitar solos, nothing that would get in the way of the song. And I felt that addition by subtraction was exactly what Bogle spent 45 years doing. Removing all the stuff he didn't think that you needed that got in the way of your returns. Management fees, turnover, trading costs, brokers, human emotion. And he basically left the world with a three basis point total market index fund which is completely frictionless exposure to, to the whole enchilada. And that's why I think it's timeless. Just as you listen to Blitzkrieg Bop today, 
it sounds just the same as it did when you first heard it or when somebody heard it in 1974. It's, it's just because there's no fat. There's no indulgence. There's really nothing uh, that goes bad. And to me, that, with that metaphor, I think, uh, worked well. And then I talked to your colleague, Pat, at Business Week, and he added another one, which was punk rock back in the day was known to be sort of uh, fan-owned. And here's Vanguard is customer-owned. And so, uh, I thought, you know, and so some people are going like, to be like, oh, he's crazy for that metaphor. But I, I stand by it. I, I work it out in the book and I acknowledge that it, it might seem a little crazy to certain people. But um, I think it's fun and I think it's a, nice, it's a fun way to get to some of this stuff because let's face it, mutual funds are as interesting to most people as C-SPAN. So, I had to like go above and beyond to try to make this somewhat spicy. And I also really wanted to give um, a Gen Xer's take on Bogle. Most of the books, uh, front, he's a, obviously a World War II generation, but most of the books written on Vanguard and Bogler are written from a much more um, you know, older writer. And, and I felt I wanted to really freshen him up through my Gen X lens. And that's why also I, I took some chances with metaphors. I, yeah, that that punk rock metaphor really stuck out to me in the book. I, I love that. That's so, it, I mean, it really sticks in your head. And I think that there is like an aspect of Bogle where he was so willing to be contrarian. He was so willing to say the things that nobody else would say. And and he didn't mind if people from either side were would get angry with him. But then on the flip side, he's also like a fairly religious person. So it's funny to think, think of him against that that backdrop. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, Bogle, uh, I, I didn't realize just how much he thought like a sort of um, revolutionary type guy. But, you know, he in his last book, he's 89 years old. Um, he writes about taking the path less traveled. He was more interested in contrarian ideas. He says, I've not, I've not done anything in my nine decades but fight. And then one of the last quotes is that Dylan Thomas quote, rage against the dying of the light. And, you know, you, you read his book and you think it's going to be about, you know, expense ratios, but there's a lot more in there. And you see this guy really had a fiery spirit right till the end. Okay. Hot take number two, I think, is the fact that as you write, and I think it's central part of the book, crux of the book, if you will, the index fund wasn't the thing that made Vanguard Vanguard, was it? What was it? Yeah, no, I premise in the book that index funds um, needed Vanguard more than Vanguard needed index funds simply because index funds would not be anywhere near the big deal they are if they were expensive. They're only a smash hit because they're cheap. And they only started becoming a big hit when they sort of hit the 20 basis point level. But they started off at 45 basis points. But the Vanguard mutual ownership structure was able to take them down little by little over 45 years. It took a long time, but once they got to that low level, it just became like the tipping point. But I'm telling you, Wall Street's general thing is not to charge anything that cheap, especially to retail. They may chart, let an institution get exposure for under 20 basis points because the institution is going to pony up so much money. But for retail, um, they need to charge a lot. They like to charge a lot. And even the Wells Fargo Fund, and which was the company credited with launching the first one. We had Mac McGowan on the show uh, about a year ago. Um, that that index fund is still, I think, 45 basis points and has a 5% load. And that's with Vanguard in the picture. So you imagine no Vanguard and no structure. Index funds probably exist, but they're probably 70, maybe they're down to 50 basis points. And then there's no way that this becomes a thing because active would not would then not as be judged by the benchmark because you could not invest in the benchmark. You're investing in the benchmark plus 50 
to 100 basis points. So that is huge. And if the index fund never existed, Vanguard's active mutual fund business, in my opinion, would be six times bigger than anybody else. They're already the third biggest, and that's with Bogle dumping on them constantly. Well, I should say dumping on active constantly. And if he had supported those uh, active funds, they're all cheaper than the average. They would be bringing a gun to a knife fight in, in every occasion, and I think they would be huge. So also, the mutual ownership structure is now headed to wealth management, and it's charging a fraction of the fee. So in other words, the lack of profit motive is really <laughs> the innovation here. Whatever it touches, it's going to wreak havoc on. Index funds happen to be the first thing that it picked. And boy, was it a match made in heaven. But the index fund, in my opinion, gets way too much credit for the index fund revolution, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. And I, I even mentioned, I think when you look out across the industry at Vanguard's biggest competitors, the Fidelities, the BlackRocks, those companies are either publicly traded or privately held. And the, the original goal, at least, was never just how can we save money for investors? But at Vanguard, it was. And that was, that was a huge innovation. And now you look at marketing materials from other companies, and they'll specifically name check Vanguard and say, oh, this fund cheaper even than Vanguard because they know that they have to show investors that they're keeping up with Vanguard prices. And this is really what we used to call, or I, I call the Vanguard effect. And I've used that term a lot in my writing. And I, I riffed off of that phrase with the Bogle effect, simply because I think the book really centers on him. And I feel like his character was so unique, like the structure was unique, that they the two of them were powerful combo. But I agree with you. What also attracted me to this was just how how much of the flows are dictated by Vanguard, even if they're not going into Vanguard funds. It's astonishing. It's basically like all the money in America pretty much goes to Vanguard or people who copy their low fee index funds. So in a way, the whole industry is now governed by the mutual ownership structure, even if they aren't mutually owned themselves. And it's really, it's, it's, it's just crazy, the numbers. And it's funny, you know, we get so wrapped up in meme stocks and, um, you know, uh, theme funds and all the amount of money even crypto, the amount of money that goes into Vanguard every day just dwarfs all of that. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Okay, hot take number three, Eric. Could have been an alternate headline that I played with for the excerpt in, in Bloomberg Business Week, which was how Jack Bogle made Kathy Wood. That is crazy to me. Yeah, it's it's highly ironic. There's a whole chapter dedicated to this because obviously you think Vanguard Bogle, you think index funds and ETFs and costs coming down, and we cover all that for sure. But the rise of Vanguard and passive has is completely reforming active. Active is not dying, but it's evolving. And really what's going on, ironically, is the more the core of the portfolio is filled with cheap index funds for most people, the more they're going to seek something completely opposite to add on top of it. Because they don't need the S&P 500 stocks with some small bets around it, which is what Legacy Active does, because they already own all those stocks. So Kathy Wood comes along and she's like, I'm going to buy all of these really futuristic stocks. I'm going to have 99% active share versus the S&P 500, which means only 1% overlap in their portfolios. And I'm going to give you a chance at some serious upside, like a call option. And that sells. And it sells because it practically fits into a portfolio. I think this also benefits crypto. I think it benefits thematic investing. Basically, people are going to stomach volatility much better because it's just this little satellite position. And they already have all the fundamentally sound, serious investor stocks and bonds covered for four basis points. And even further is, I think active share or how different you are from the benchmark is going to replace alpha as the main driver for flows for active which I know is something it's people, some people don't want to hear that, but I think that's where it's going because people are just seeking out something different. And it explains the durability of Kathy Wood's assets and thematic ETFs assets. And I think crypto to a degree, but um, this was part of the chapter where I explained why legacy active failed or is failing and seeing outflows, but why this new crop of active is popping up and has a real, uh, spot in the Vanguardian future. That said, it's a little bit like Kevin Bacon's acting career. Started as the star of the movies. And if you notice over his career, he shifted to more of a supporting role. And I think Active will have to do the same. What do you think Vogel would make of that? I feel like he would hate to hear that in any way his legacy <laughs> has gone to like, you know, bolstering ARC or, or crypto. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, No, he would not have liked it. So Bogle was a, a Puritan, almost Jesus-esque in his ability to not take the bait anywhere. But not, not everybody's built like him. Um, you know, they can buy into what he's saying, but also want to have a little fun. You know, people uh, generally like to speculate. He would say, you don't need it. One time I was in an interview with him and I said, remember, um, we had smart beta and stuff. And I would say, well, um, I think I used an example of an industry ETF, semiconductors. I said, let's say... You are. You think semiconductors are a great business, but there's not a lot of semi-stocks in the S&P 500 yet. What about buying a semiconductor ETF? And his answer was, 
Well, then you're speculating, and anybody who speculates is a damn fool, you know, in his very <laughs> like World War II language. And that that's a ton. You when I interviewed him, and I, I I kept challenging him with these. Well, what if? What if? I felt like the box that sends out the skeets, and he was the skeet shooter, just blowing each one. Boom, <laughs> boom, boom. Like there was really nothing that he didn't shoot down, because at the end of his life, he was just that. All you need is the total market fund, but. People are are not wired like him. They're not maybe as strong or pure. And I think, I don't think, I think he would understand it. I just don't think he would agree with it. But this is just the reality I'm trying to capture. And that's all I want to do is be right and help people have a guide for the future. And I think there's something to that. But I would also say, if I, if I met with him again now, I would say, what about this though? What if the 10 to 20% that people use to have fun and is exciting and has a lot of upside volatility and they speculate, what if that has a behavioral uh, benefit of keeping them distracted so they don't touch the 80% that needs 40 years to grow to have max maximum potential and the compounding to kick in. I still think he would shoot that down, but it's a pretty good point, you have to admit. I, I think I think he would say horseshit. <laughs> Probably. But using Probably. the World War II. Wouldn't stop me from bringing it up, though. Okay, so hot take number four relates to behavior, right? Yeah. And this is another, so there's all these books on behavior and psychology and the importance of, of evidence and behavior. And it's great. And there's a whole renaissance in the advisory world. They're saying that behavior is now our main value add. And that's great. You have to hang in there. Even if it's better to actually hang in there with an active fund probably than trade index funds. The, the point is, you, you know, not selling when the market's getting scary and maybe not buying at the top. People did that in the past, and that behavioral gap became a real problem for investors. But just introducing the index fund at three basis points, in my opinion, completely changed behavior for the better. Because people who, people who are buying an index fund in their core are resigned to the fact there's nothing better they can get. So when the market goes down, they don't think to themselves, well, my index fund is underperforming. Let me hop to a better performing fund the way they used to in the 90s with active. They're just like, well, I own the whole market for three basis points. Where, where else am I going to go? This is such a good deal. I'm going to just hold it. And so they that resignation is much easier if a three basis point index fund exists. And it doesn't get brought up in the books a lot. It's a lot about mentally keeping yourself. And I there is some of that. But just introducing that tool, I think, made behavior a hell of a lot easier and gets it doesn't get enough credit, um, in my opinion, because I have a chapter called The Art of Doing Nothing. And how doing nothing is hard. It's an action almost. And, you know, you've got the media and Robin Hood and commission free. And a lot of things are trying to entice you to trade your own brain. But a cheap index fund, I think, really makes it easy um, and doesn't really get brought up that much in some of the other works around behavior. It's kind of a funny twist, though, now, because post-Bogle, Vanguard is pushing so hard into the advice business. So seemingly, they're also staking their future. Besides, obviously, their in huge index fund franchise, they're also staking their future on the ability to convince customers that advice is useful, right? Yeah, and Vanguard wrote a controversial uh, advisor's alpha and they, they said it's worth 2 to 3% a year uh, having an advisor. I asked Bogle about advisors. And what he said was, look, if an advisor is moving you from this active fund to that active fund and trying to pick stuff for you, bad. 
But if they're providing behavioral coaching and they're planning for you and doing tax management, that's probably good. And if they're using very low cost investments and not turning the portfolio over, um, then they're probably worth something. So he was mixed on it, but it, it's a good point uh, that you bring up. I would almost bring up that, that Vanguard is in some ways sometimes pushing active a little more lately. Um, although Vogel was never anti-active, he was more anti-greedy, expensive, gravy train active. I think he thought they should have shared economies of scale a little more, gotten cheaper, and they would have served investors better. But um, Vanguard and Vogel have a gap forming, to your point, Annie. And that is a chat. I have a chapter called Vogel versus Vanguard, and I explore that gap. I do think the Bogle heads get a little too crazed about some of the things Vanguard does. But I do think Vanguard is also oddly shunning Bogle's legacy a little bit lately. And I think they're both, I think for the Bogle heads, most of the money still goes to Boglean funds like VOO and VTI. They're very Bogle-ish. That's where the ball blob of money really goes. Maybe at the edges, there's some stuff that isn't Bogle where there's some cash flowing, but the main stuff's still there. And for the Vanguard, the company, I would say embrace Bogle as much as you can. He was really great. I mean, it'd be like if I worked at Apple, I'd be like, hell yeah, I work at the company Steve Jobs created. This guy was great. Let's talk Steve Jobs. Um, I, I just that would I would just think that way. I work for Bloomberg. I'm fine. I think Bloomberg's an uh, innovative guy. I'd be happy. I'm proud of that. I just don't get the sort of veering off of of the Bogle DNA uh, in the way they have lately. So. I do think they're closer than people think, but there is a gap forming between the Bogleheads and the Vanguard crowd a little bit. And you can you can see it on social media. Annie, you literally just wrote about the tension between the Bogleheads and Vanguard, right? That's right. I wrote this story about how there, to Eric's point, how there has become a bit of a gap uh, between Vanguard as it is now and Bogle. And it's interesting because I think that if you look at the competitive landscape, it's so rare that any company, to say nothing of a financial services company, has a founder that inspires the kind of almost religious zeal and like fanaticism that Bogle does. And people are still so excited about Bogle and how he shaped investing principles. And the Bogle has this online community of real Vanguard adherents uh, who are investors in the funds, who who post and share uh, ideas about investing, but also everything online. Um, uh, they've, I think they've become a little bit frustrated with Vanguard in some respects recently over, over things that they feel Bogle never would have let happen. One big recurring theme, and, and Eric, I know you um, go into this in your book as well, is customer service. Some some Bogleheads that I spoke to for the story mentioned that they feel that there's been a decline in customer service over time. Of course, Vanguard's a company that keeps its costs low, as we know, but asset management is moving in a direction where you need to spend more and more money on things like customer service and technology. And, and some of them have felt that uh, Vanguard has left those principles behind a little bit. Yeah, Annie, it, it's really interesting you bring that up. I, I There's a chapter called quote, some worry in the book where I, I go over all these worries of passive. And most of them, I think, are hogwash, um, largely driven by active managers who are a little jealous or academics who just really overthink things. I think at the end of the day, a lot of money has just moved from you know an active fund that holds Apple, Google, and Microsoft to a cheaper index fund that owns the same stocks. It's not a big deal. Um, but to your point, as I went down into some of the worries of passive, one of the ones 
I got to was customer service because if you don't charge anything, who will answer the phone? This is honestly part of what the pushback on Bitcoin and DeFi has been. If you go completely off the system, like who's going to, who can you call if you need help? And this is a, that's one of the biggest anti DeFi arguments I've heard. Bogle was kind of like, had the same ethos as DeFi, in my opinion, um, you know, OG kind of style, but not the same, but similar. And there were even people I interviewed who were fans of Bogle. Uh, they privately told me they had problems, you know, getting through. Uh, they had recommended Vanguard to some relatives and the relative was frustrated on the, the call lines taking too long. Also, if you go to the Boglehead site, they even have people crying out there that it's a problem. So if the Boglehead site is saying that, then you know you have an issue. And I also went to Yelp.com where uh, Vanguard gets a 1.5 stars out of five. Oof. You, you, Oof. Know what else, you know what else gets 1.5 stars? The Walmart on Columbus Boulevard, which if you, one, one user described as the seventh circle of hell. Um, so if, if you're the same as the Walmart in Philly, uh, you need to address that. And Vanguard, I think, is too good to, and have worked too hard to have a reputation that is really stellar to let this drag them down. So, uh, you know, my what I think they should do is take some of the more – instead of the profits going to lowering fees, they're already like basically nothing. You know, continue to use those to help customer service. I think their investors are okay paying five instead of four or four instead of three um, if they have better customer service because you're already at dirt cheap levels. Um, but Bogle, um, this is part of what – possibly could bring down Vanguard um, is this customer service thing, at least or at least harm them. One person I spoke with, Aaron Arvindland, the Philadelphia Inquirer, who's covered Vanguard locally, um, said that was their Achilles heel. And a couple other people said the same thing. They said they're dealing with it better, but that's something um, that possibly could slow their, their growth. One sort of conspiracy theory I've heard to that point is uh, the idea that Vanguard almost doesn't care like they're like let people buy vanguard funds from fidelity like in fidelity accounts no problem we'll just keep the cost low here and leave the customer service to what you know choose your platform there are plenty of places to buy vanguard funds so that's not you know that's just kind of a conspiracy theory that's out there but advisors i spoke to have said we've seen people say i'm fed up with the direct from vanguard customer service i love the funds and I still want to be in the funds, but I just go to some other brokerage to buy them. Yeah. And it's funny you say that. I've also heard a conspiracy theory to that point that that's why they're subtly making the ETF share class a little cheaper. So people migrate into that share, which then puts them over at other brokers and away from the, the Vanguard sort of uh, mutual fund family. And I mean, honestly, they didn't start doing that until after Bogle passed away. And I'm sure he wouldn't have loved it given he had some complicated feelings with ETFs. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Okay, hot take number five. There are many more hot takes in the book. Vogel's dream is far from realized. That's a little crazy to me. We, I mean, 30% of U.S. funds are Vanguard. And that's not good enough, Eric. What's the number going to be? How big does Vanguard have to get before his dream is realized? Yeah, the, you know when we when I wrote the ETF book six years ago, that's how you and I actually met. I, I discovered something in my research that just blew me away, excited me, and made me, um, you know, it, it was one of those moments when you when you go into a research project that you need to give you energy and inspiration, and that in our case was that the SEC helped invent the ETF. I did not know that from all the books I read. In this case, that thing in this research was this sentence that was buried in one of Bogle's books that hardly anybody read called Character Counts, which is just his speeches to the crew. He says this in 1991, the first sign that Vanguard's mission has created a better world for the investor will be when our market share begins to erode. Can someone out there find me uh, another example of where the CEO told the, the crew and the staff, like, I want our market share to erode. I mean, I just, not just asset management, let's try all of business. I just, has that ever happened? It really hits to the different trip he was on. But he said this in 1991 when Vanguard had less than 1% of the assets they had today. That's how far into the future he could see. He saw Vanguard getting big, and it was starting to gain traction in 91. That was about 16, 17 years after it started. And now we're in a world where their market share is growing and growing and growing. It's not quite 30%, but it's it's over a quarter, and it's quickly going there, though. And I think it, it might hit 40, 50 before there's any erosion. And what Bogle said that for was because he knows that the only way to stop Vanguard is to get cheap like them, get uh, he liked the word stewardship, fiduciary. He would force everyone else sort of kicking and screaming to his level or Vanguard's level. And at that point, possibly Vanguard's market share would, would begin to top off and then erode. And the problem with that vision for asset managers is it means you're selling stuff that makes you no money. So 
It's almost as if he envisioned a utopia for investors, but is a total hellscape for the asset management industry. And this will take 20 years to play out. But again, that's why I said this book is as much about the past and the present as it is about the future. But that is, again, and he said it in 91, and the whole thing, it blew my mind, uh, helped me kind of really cement the fact this guy was just marching to a beat of a different drummer and excited me to sort of finish off this book and have his name in the title. I struggle with titles, but I was like, I think Bogle should be in the title. I think he should be put forth front and center. I put Vanguard in the subtitle. But um, anyway, so that's, I think, another sort of hot take from the book is Bogle's dream hasn't even, quote, begun, not even begun to be realized um, based on what he said. And he thought that way all the way up until the end of his life. Another kind of surprising thing he said in his final years was he mentioned this whole debate over uh, over common ownership and how index fund firms like Vanguard and BlackRock have become such huge shareholders in corporate America. It causes these weird distortions. And it I think it shows to your point on on that speech that he was willing to think through, think way ahead uh, about how something he created could have uh, unintended consequences. Um, and, and he just saw so far out into the future and, and was willing to be open about it in a way that I think it's pretty rare uh, for any kind of person in a position of leadership, certainly in corporate America, um, to be. It's also 1991, um, you know, this was the 90s. This is just as the 90s economy was starting. It's interesting to me going back to that one book, Character Counts, which while it was one of his lesser selling books, is really interesting because you get to see Bogle speaking in the in the 80s and in the 90s. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember those decades, especially the 80s. There's a speech he gives in 1987 at the Christmas party. And <laughs> that's when the movie Wall Street came out, where Gordon Gecko is out there saying, greed is good and... Oliver Stone said he did it as a warning movie, but it inspired all these traders to go in and try to make a ton of money on Wall Street. At the same time, within the month, basically, the movie that audiences are watching that speech, Bogle is talking to the to the crew about like, well, if we can, you know, going to keep lowering fees a little bit, we'll be on the right track, stay the course, yada, yada. It sounded exactly like the way he spoke in 2015. And that is interesting to me is how laser focused he could be despite the culture and the times changing. And in 87, nobody was asking for cheap. They did, it just wasn't a big deal. In the 90s, they weren't. Um, that's, again, that, that serious vision by him that was fun to deconstruct for sure. Okay, Eric, congrats again on the book. Um, although we failed to mention my favorite quote in the book, which you got to speak to Michael Lewis. What did Michael Lewis have to say about Jack Bogle? Yeah, I was really curious what Michael Lewis thought of Bogle because Michael Lewis seems like a very curious guy and he's going to all these interesting corners of the financial world. And I thought, you know, I wonder why he's never written about Vanguard. And I also read he invested Vanguard. And so I, I sort of asked him, you know, I asked to interview him and he said yes. And we talked for about a half an hour. And over the interview, I think he started to see what I saw. Um, and I won't go into details, but one of the things he, he, he asked, he goes, you know, um, he was shocked that indexing took so long to take off because when he read, when he first read a random walk down Wall Street by Burt Malkiel in the 80s, he thought, why isn't everybody doing this? It's so obvious. 
Um, so he was really interested in that aspect. So I explored why it took so long uh, heavily in the book because I'm like, if Michael Lewis thinks that's interesting, I should probably hang there for a little bit. Um, but then he said, um, he started to get, uh, it's funny, Michael Lewis started asking me questions <laughs> halfway through the interview. And then he says like, how much money did Bogle have when he died? And I said, 80 million. And he about fell off his chair. He said, I thought you were going to say 2 billion. And even then I, I would have thought, wow, he really left a lot on the table. And then he said this, which is very eloquent. He, he commandeered trillions of dollars and he only made a few million for himself. In the history of Wall Street, the ratio of money touched to money taken was never so high. Which I almost put that on the cover uh, because I thought that really captured it. Um, but again, I didn't want it to be so much about Bogle, the sort of like saintly guy who took less money. Because let's face it, 80 million to most people is still a ton. And people close to him back in the 70s uh, said that he was well paid. He never He always had a nice house. He just didn't go crazy with the billionaire thing. He just kept a nice upper middle class sort of existence. Um, he just didn't need more. And one of his books is called Enough Even. But I did find one thing he did need a lot of, and that was adulation. You know, he, he could never get enough praise. And that was something his son talked about. And in the chapter on explaining Bogle, I talk about his ego and some of his deficits. But um, I think that made a miscast for Wall Street. Most people who want adulation may go in the arts or the priesthood. Uh, he's be able to do a mutual fund management. Um, and But it actually worked out well to have somebody who was arguably miscast in this industry as it really helped, I think, move the industry towards a better, more fiduciary uh, place. Eric, congrats again on the Bogle effect. Annie, thanks so much for joining us on Trillion. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.